Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to a new season of the Indie Football Podcast. It's been an exciting summer of endless transfer rumours, heartfelt come and get me please and big money moves. And that's just the world of football journalism. I'm your host, Luke Brown, and joining me in the studio are the familiar voices of our chief football writer, Miguel Delaney. Hello. Our sports editor, Ben Burrows. Hello. And we're also delighted to welcome our brand new summer signing, Tony Evans, to the studio as well. Oh, yeah. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest in Premier League transfer news. Miguel will talk through exactly why he thinks the future of English football is in trouble. And we'll also be talking about Tony's indie debut on Monday, which was an open letter to Jacob Rees-Mogg on Liverpool fans booing the national anthem. But before we get to all that, let's quickly talk about Sunday's match, which was the Community Shield. Uh, Miguel, you were there. What did we learn from the match, if anything? Um, I'd hope maybe that it will reflect that Liverpool can put up a bit of a fight, even though I, doubt, I do think City will win the league by six points. I'm like, is that really in the podcast already? <laughs> um, but I was, I, I was impressed by Liverpool's perseverance and resilience in the game, I have to say, because it looked like at halftime, like City would easily win it and they were kind of much sharper and as if they kind of They'd set the pace this season again instantly. But they actually were a bit... They disintegrated a bit second half. Uh, and I suppose that is a good sign for anyone that wants an actually competitive title race. Obviously, like usually the community show is a good chance to kind of look at new new signings and kind of get excited about new players. Only City had a new player. That was Rodri. Um, ben, what did you make of his performance? Yeah, I was going to say, the sort of the only interesting thing usually about a Community Shield match is how it's seeing one of those new players, really. Um, I thought Rodri was good. I thought he sort of slotted in quite well. It sort of shows City's strength, really, that they can only sign one player and yet it appears they've sort of... Uh, solved their one issue if Fernandinho being a bit old is an issue. I thought he was good. I thought he showed some good touches. Obviously, it's going to take a bit of time to get used to what Pep wants him to do. But I think um, I think City looked good, like Miguel said. I thought they were good in the first half. A bit of like, not lack of squad depth, but sort of didn't really use the depth as much in the second half as Liverpool did, and I thought that showed. Yeah. Can we Can we kind of really take anything away from the match obviously the community shield it's hard to kind of judge where it sits the European managers usually like it but Tony did it feel like a kind of international champions cup match or did it have a bit more to, to it than that I think it has a little bit more to it because of the increasing rivalry and, and spite between the two clubs um, what, what does it tell us probably that you know these are going to be the two teams who've got the likeliest chance of winning the league and in reality probably only one of them's you know um you know, sort of a real contender City. I think Liverpool are further ahead in the fitness, in the preparation than City were, and that showed in the second half. But I mean, it, it's it's not going to be a walk over this season. City are not going to have it all their own way. They will be challenged right till the end. So I think that's where it holds us. Do we think that Liverpool can bridge that one point gap, given that they haven't signed any players, and obviously Manchester City they've only signed one key player, but he does strength from the squad so significantly. Uh, I think they'll drop off a bit, and I suppose the issue is that our City drop off at all as well. Uh, but I still, I still just think City will get ninety-five plus points. To be honest, um, 
I, I don't know, just think when they click in the gear, they're, they're, they're almost like this, this machine that can perform to a certain level that means, you know, 14 to 16 clubs in the Premier League just can't do anything against them. I think that's, all, that's their main advantage over everyone, really. I thought I thought Klopp was right to say that getting the likes of Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and Admiral back is like new signings, so it's a cliche, but it's true in their case. But I, it feels a little bit from the outside like a sort of missed opportunity that the likes of Salah, Mane, Van Dijk and Klopp aren't going to all be around forever. It sort of felt like they maybe needed to strike when the iron is hot, perhaps. Yeah, traditionally Liverpool strengthens when they were, you know, when when they've been successful. And let's face it, after winning the Champions League, Anfield's never been more attractive to players, mm. and and they haven't done it. Um, Ferguson was the master of bringing in players. Whenever they won the league, you know, he, he brought in at least one player. In fact, the only season after they won the league, he brought in one player. He brought in Roy Keane, which um, was a masterstroke. Um, so. It, it makes sense to, to, to do that after you've been successful. But, I mean, Liverpool like to think they do things differently. And there's been a, a little bit of like um, a backwards-looking narrative after they won the Champions League, sort of looking at the history and re, re-scoping it to fit success as if it's all part of a great master plan. Well... That's not quite true. Um, you know, so the people talking about building the statues of Michael Edwards. Well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure he's statue material at all. Uh, and this this was the time, I would have thought, to strike, to strengthen the squad and to say, right, we're going to make a statement. We're going to um, challenge City. And the other thing is, no matter how good your manager is, whether it's Pep or Klopp, the players have heard what they've got to say. For yeah. in, in Pep's uh, case, three years, and then Klopp's, you know, he's, he's about to start his fifth year, and you kind of the, the the players have heard it all before, and they stopped responding to it. I was speaking to a chief executive this week who said, you know, he comes to the point where you either change the players or change the manager. Now Klopp's uh, Klopp's obviously his is. Um, his reputation is as high as it can be because he's been so successful. But still, if they go on a bad run, then there'll be a little bit of, um, you know, the players will be jaded. They'll have heard what he has to say before. Bringing a new face in puts pressure on the squads and gives a new set of ears in the dressing room. So I think it would have made sense. But, I mean, Klopp says he's happy and he's in the right to say that sort of thing at the moment. I think it's a mistake, personally. Yeah, on the other side, though, it's probably maybe the one hope everyone else has against City as well, and that, like, given how utterly intense Guardiola is, I mean, like, the stories you hear, like, and all the, all, almost all the players basically think he's a genius, but even some of those who think he's a genius do kind of think, this is a bit much, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and I, I agree completely. Again, I spoke to someone this week who said, you've, you've got to uh, take into account the effects physically and psychologically of the way Guardiola does things. Yeah. It wears players down. Even the best players who are responding to him, who love him, mm. they, 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 he's so intense. They, they they struggle with it. So, I mean, I think that's the best hope for the rest of the division. Yeah, which is basically, Guardiola's perfection is the, is the, is yeah, the yeah. best hope for the division. If you have to pick a weakness area where you think maybe players might start tiring or players might start struggling in that City team and allowing other teams to kind of catch up with them, where do you see that being? Because they've been so good at kind of adding one, two players to that squad and keeping competition for places and, and shuttling players around depending on the tournament. What what do you think their weak point is? Feels like, I mean, from the outside, you don't know what it's like in the dressing room. From the outside, I think Vincent Company will be a big loss for them, it's particularly in the dressing room. He obviously played. It was interesting uh, to see Pep go for him in some of the biggest games down the stretch. 
despite the fact he made a couple of high-profile errors, particularly against Liverpool in the first game. And But he still went for him, still plumped for him in those biggest games. So trying to plug that gap, Nicolas Otamendi had a really good season the year before last and dropped off quite, lot, quite significantly last time. Obviously, there's hopes for Stones, whose own form dropped off a lot. I think, obviously, they were in for Maguire, who Pep says they couldn't afford to sign. Um, <laughs> that, that actually, that, that's a team that really started, sorry to cut, to cut across with, that's a team that really started in May with Khaldun responding to Tebas's comments and, you know, we, we don't break transfer fees, all the rest of it. That is such strategically stated nonsense because <laughs> you, you, you can't go on about how you don't spend money when basically you're enti- you have the most stacked squad in world football and when you've signed a player for 65 million in Mares and he only makes 14 starts in a treble winning campaign or 14 Premier League starts treble winning it's just it, it, it's so disingenuous that yeah, that, I mean, I mean they, they love to cry poverty don't they yeah. when you know it's uh, they've skewed the entire game let's face it <laughs> yeah. can, can we see anybody catching up with City and Liverpool, obviously, if we take a look at the kind of rest of the big six, Chelsea came third last season. Frank Lampard's come in. There's been a lot of they've got, they've got quite a thin squad, but there's a sense maybe you know the feel good factors kind of come back a little bit. Ben, how do you see them doing? Certainly feels that way. I think I mean it's very good for Chelsea fans to see the likes of Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham giving the number nine shirt. This kind of thing is what this the vast loan market was supposed to be able to do forever. The transfer ban obviously allows them now to integrate them into the team. I can't help thinking from the outside that this is perhaps, I mean, it's just a bit too soon for Lampard, I think. I mean, it, it could work both ways. He's obviously been told that it doesn't matter whatever happens this season, you've got the transfer ban. It's almost an excuse to bed in your methods and all this kind of thing. But that's all well and good in July and August. But if they are 10th, 12th in December, it's a different story. And it's going to be a lot of pressure for a guy who effectively took Derby to sixth place and then lost the playoff final. I'm not saying I agree with this, but there is a fair argument that Solskjaer, the managers of Manchester United and Chelsea are the two worst managers in the Premier League, or at the very least, the least proven. Mm. Um, and I don't know. Chelsea- I, I think you'd stick with worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can uh, certainly see why, yeah. why Chelsea have done what they've done. I mean, I, yeah. I mean it's, it's great to see it from the outside. There's obviously the feel-good thing is, is a real thing. And there's certainly giving that uh, impression from the outside. but um, I guess he's the perfect person to essentially sell the transfer ban as a good well, thing, right? Basically, yeah. yeah. It almost feels as much as a political appointment. And This could be a very difficult season for Chelsea. and It could have led to a lot of backlash because if they, if they start badly, if someone else is the manager, then they'll be like, why, are we actually, why do we even have a transfer ban? What's going on? Where is the investment? Um, but obviously, Lampard will ensure that get, all gets put off for a year because it'll take a lot for this crowd turn against it but on that I think there's a wider point I was thinking about a piece in this ahead of the uh, Super Cup against Liverpool next week how it's amazing especially given all this chat about City but 16 16 years ago Chelsea were the club that basically completely transformed the transfer market what they were doing was it was scarcely believable and now like not that far into the future their identity is going to completely transform be based on kind of bringing players through almost a local identity again it's quite it's you know, it's a bit of a strange juxtaposition. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a strange club because if ever a club needs to press the reset button, it was Chelsea. I mean, you know, you look at the managers that um, the club's chewed up and spat out, you know, over the years. You know, it's, um, it's outrageous. And when they sacked Mourinho for the first time in 2007, they, they, they decided on the strategy of downgrading the manager and the manager's importance was, um, you know, sort of was minimalised, you know, sort of not involved in the transfer market. And, um, and they decided managers were interchangeable. Now, with Lampard, the one thing they've got is the chance to change that and go back to a more traditional way of doing things. Whether he's good enough to carry it off at this stage of his career is another question. I mean, he, he is, and everyone says, you know, he's a, he's a bright fella and he's he's very articulate and very, you know, sort of very good. But whether whether he can um, whether he can pull together that group of players who. Let's face it. Some of them have seen off three managers, <laughs> you know. It's um, and whether without any big money buys, you know, he can improve them. I mean, last year when Hazard wasn't on his game, they were terrible, and he's gone now. So I don't see them. I I, I don't see. I mean, the 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 lucky really that Arsenal and Man United are in such chaos. Otherwise, you'd say, you know, they're, they're going to finish sixth. You know, maybe even lower. It'll be fascinating to see how he kind of grapples with that dressing room because there's always been these stories, haven't there, about David Luiz and William and this kind of like Brazilian core and the amount of power those guys have. And to come in as a young manager with one season worth of experience, he's going to find that incredibly difficult. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, and it, you know, sort of players, players there have tended to have the owner's ear yeah. and and sort of go above the manager. And, and that's another thing they need to change, and they need to, to they need to, as I say, reset the power structure at the club. The one thing I'd say, I think Lampard, it's, it's not like it's going to be an issue for him that he's played with some of these players. I think he's someone that'd be very well equipped to draw a very hard line. I was talking to someone the other day about to deal with him in a work setting, for for a media thing, and he said like, you know, when when they're actually doing the discussion. Lampard was great, very charming, all the rest of it. As soon as, as, soon as the kind of the, the tape was off, he was in business. You know, this is a, a different person. I think mm. he's probably he's a, quite a hard-edged fella. Mm. Yeah. Um, hopping across London, we've got Spurs. Uh, one tabloid described their transfer activity today and yesterday as a hot splurge. Uh, Miguel, you've got all the kind of latest on that. Well, Have you got any kind of updates on on Ericsson and their various targets? The frustration with Spurs. I know they ended last season atrociously in the league. Uh, apart from the Champions League but you still always get a sense that if they did get two or three players in they could make a proper leap up and maybe if if, as we were talking about earlier if there's any sort of kind of drop off with Liverpool or City due to you know, whatever issue with the managers or whatever that Spurs could actually maybe do something I mean it's it's easy to forget that <laughs> at the start of the year it looked like they could actually be a, it could be a three way title race and they were there before they completely fell away and now I mean yeah it, they're going. It's amazing for a club that's seen as run so well and run so businesslike that they're kind of casting it everywhere with 48 hours left to the window, and you still get the, you still just have the, the lingering fear for them that they'll just be one in, or, or or at best two in overall, which would feel like a wasted opportunity. But the business at this point is really strange. Yeah, I suppose worst case scenario for them at the moment would be don't get anybody in. Ericsson stays beyond the English deadline. He's yeah. then incredibly vulnerable to leaving for what, like 20, 30 million? Uh, and and po- Pochettino now actively wants Ericsson out because he thinks like he, he, he wants to build for the future. 
Uh, he wants to build with players that don't don't want to be there for more than a year, and he he really just he thinks someone who's going to leave as soon as that is just a, it's a waste having them around, and, and that's always been the way with Potch as well. As, as soon as anyone shows any inkling to leave, it's quite it's almost like a dictatorship in that team, and that there's any sort of dissent gone. Yeah. Um, Levy's obviously shown a a willingness to do this before, so he's it's like we like Miguel said, it's sort of a, for a well-run business to leave it this late is strange, but he's had success doing it before. Obviously, there's Moussa Sissoko, but obviously, who's latterly proven worth it. But it's it's whether you can get the best value and it's best for the overall team by leaving it this late. Because if yeah. you could have got a Giovanni Lo Celso or a Bruno Fernandes in June, then surely you'd have been better off doing the, so. The worrying thing for me is that the fact that they haven't signed a right-back to replace Trippier, they're a bit kind of confused on the left and Danny Rose was offered around to clubs, hasn't left. And the fact that they're trying to move on Ericsson and then sign at least one more midfielder would suggest they're going to completely change their playing style. They have experimented with different formations in pre-season and to do that, you'd think you would need a full summer to kind of get that get to grips with something like that and yet they've left it all to the last minute in their first games on Saturday yeah it, it's one of those things where everyone says you know the well run and Levy does the business at the last minute and um, you know and it, you know and everyone says oh yeah it's good he gets bargains and he gets good money for people but you know the reality is managers would rather have the players there earlier work on the system and you know sort of get, get players to integrate and it's no coincidence that Tottenham don't win trophies, you know, when they do things like that. It's, um, you know, perhaps if they were more stable and did things earlier, they'd be in a better position to to win. And uh, as for Pochettino, the minute he falls out with a player, they're dead to him. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he yeah. blanks them and it's, um, and it, it's, it's not an, an altogether admirable treat. Speaking of chaotic transfer business, we've obviously got Arsenal who have... <laughs> Smashed their club record for Nicolas Pepe. Um, completely neglected to sign a defender. Mustafi could still go. Um, Miguel, what have you kind of made of, of that window? It's, it's both a great window and an atrocious window. In that, like, <laughs> they've signed players that will obviously excite people and, are gonna, and, and kind of change the complexion of the team. And yet the team still has major problems. Um, I mean, they, they, they're still in for a centre-half, I suppose. But there's no guarantee they'll get one or one of sufficient quality, given this is a club that has an awful record in signing centre-halves of late. Um, and well, the last ten years, really, you can count them through Wenger as well. You went the flops, uh, so it, they're still really, really hard to make. <laughs> they're, an in, they're an interesting club. They've sort of forever being accused of being a bit too short-termist of late by signing sort of slightly older players, which has worked in Aubameyang's case. And now it seems they've flipped to go very long-term. So buying a player with, in instalments and doing it over the Spreading all that out is a very modern way of thinking. Signing a player and sending him back on loan for a year is a modern way of thinking, but they've still left themselves painfully short in the short term. It's quite a complex situation. Well, what's interesting with Arsenal, it's not just that this transfer business feels slightly inconsistent. It's That comes actually come, that comes from a bit of kind of inconsistent application of philosophy behind the scenes. I mean, this was a club that initially... You know, just only a year ago, it went through probably one of the biggest changes ever will with the, uh, reti- or well, I suppose with the forced retirement of Arsene Wenger, you might call it. Is that, can we get legal, legal trouble for that? That's <laughs> about right. <laughs> um, so, um, but obviously, they, they they were smarter than United in that sense, and they, they kind of preempted a bit by putting in place a technical structure. Except there are always questions about like that that technical structure didn't really fit together that seamlessly. But as part of that, Emery was just a head coach, and they were going to base it on based so much of the recruitment on a more analytical style of Sven Mislintat. And within, within less than a year, 
Mifflin's hat's gone. Emery's role has, is now much, it's much more powerful than head coach. He has much more say in transfers. And linked to that, a lot of the way they do business is kind of agent-based and having relationships with San Leahy. So I think I think that similarly points to a, a little bit of an inconsistency with, it, with their business as well. But but also means that there's a pr- bit of pressure as well now. To, it's, it's only me, but does it feel like Wenger hasn't really gone? It's yeah. like it's almost like his ghost has possessed Emery. You know, nothing's changed. They're the same frustrating Arsenal. I mean, I I, I can't abide watching them. I sit there in the press box, banging my head on the table <laughs> because, like, you know, the, the same. They've been making the same mistakes for you know fifteen years now, yeah. and 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 nothing changes. So I can't see it changing this year. There's just no conviction, is there? There, like no. that's the thing. You, they never truly convince, and even and even the, when they're on it and they start destroying a team, you still only ever get the sense that, well, this is only because it's easy for them today. Rather right. than they, they're still not a team that's going to kind of drag you through. And you always feel like they need one more. Yeah. yeah. Emery really rolled the dice on Dennis Suarez. Obviously, there's been a lot of money splashed around this summer in a not typically Arsenal fashion. There's a break clause in his contract at the end of the season. Do you think that maybe if they finish outside the top four again, that could be him gone? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think if they finish outside the top four again, I think that there'll be major changes there. I think there'll be significant changes because, you know, even Kroenke can't ignore that. You know, it's... Um, and, I, I mean, the one thing as well they'll be aware of is that a huge change is coming up in European football in the next five years. And you need to start positioning yourself now to take advantage of that. That's a subject we'll come back to over over the next few weeks. <laughs> Just before we head to a break, uh, quick chat on Manchester United. Obviously, it looked like it was going to be an absolutely unbelievable window for them. They've kind of sorted out their defence. They've spent big on Harry Maguire, but they're missing out on a midfielder and a forward. And they've got the, the issue with Lukaku at the minute. Uh, Miguel, got any kind of updates and how, how well do you think they've done? Uh, five out of ten. And that it's just it just it, they've solved a few issues, but even that, I mean, the, the fundamental problem with United is something bigger and wider. It's that any signing isn't really going into a proper plan either. It's all just a reaction. It's all um, just to solve a previous problem rather than kind of looking forward, actually trying to build something. Despite Solskjaer's notions of uh, of you know style of play, trying to instill, um, and even, like there's even questions like. So this this is a manager who went so out there at the end of the season. A lot of these players mightn't be here, and have struggled to move anyone on. Mm. It's it's again, it's just it's such a dysfunctional setup. Yeah, it, it's a complete not a mess there. And Ed's Woodward, I mean, how how he's retained his position, I'll never know. It's just um, and and this is a typically, I, I mean, I, I you know, I think certainly signing a, a good centre half was a. A positive move for them. I mean, you know, so to, uh, people are paying ridiculous money for centre halves these days, but there's so many problems to be addressed in that yeah. team. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the league needs a strong Man United, and that we're not getting one. I think they were linked with like 50 players this summer or something ridiculous when we added them up earlier. Ben, what one player or what type of player do you think they're going to most miss if the deadline comes and they're, they're left with these three additions? It's tricky, isn't it? I think it's quite telling from Man United's point of view that their ne- negotiations in quote marks for Aaron Wan-Bissaka ended up being paying the transfer fee that Palace wanted all along and then the same, exact same scenario of Leicester City. So if they'd just paid the money they which yeah. they'd been told to pay at the start of the window, then Solskjaer could have worked with these two guys at least for the whole summer. Um, I think they are still crying out for someone to take hold of that midfield. I think if you look at the best teams in the league, City have got De Bruyne and Silva and Bernardo Silva. Liverpool, Henderson's a great player. And then the way that Salah and Firmino and Mane work in that 
uh, area of the pitch as well. They're crying out for someone to take control of that. They were obviously linked with Ndombele before Tottenham got him. I think that's going to be a great signing for Tottenham. They're crying out for someone like that. And obviously Pogba hasn't, ever been, hasn't turned into the player they thought he would be when they uh, when they signed him all those years ago. And they, that could still be a problem long after the uh, Thursday deadline. OK, thanks all. Coming up after the break, we've got Tony Evans explaining why Liverpool fans booed the national anthem. And Miguel Delaney cheerfully asks, is football ruined? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. This is the part of the show where we take a deep dive into interesting articles that we've published in the last week. Uh, Tony, you made your Indie debut this week and wrote an open letter to the Right Honourable Jacob Rees-Mogg MP (laughs) after Liverpool fans reacted uh, badly to the National Anthem at the uh, Community Shield on Sunday. Do you first of all just want to kind of talk about the reaction you've had to that piece and kind of yeah what what prompted the article in the first place because you had the idea before the before the anthem being booed yeah i mean i you know i've been booing anthems since oh since the late <laughs> 70s and um you know so i mean it's, it's not new i mean back in 1965 the fa cup final i mean the, the liverpool fans didn't boo the anthem but they sang god save our team rather than god save the queen i mean there was a the valid historical reasons for scouse exceptionalism and not feeling english and they've been exacerbated again recently by um by by you know sort of the prime minister who published a uh, a disgraceful and scurrilous article uh, over hillsborough in the spectator in the uh, the, the 2004 uh, refusing to retract the, uh, the 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 lies in that which are proven you know it's um we've had uh, the hillsborough independent panel and the inquests which you know categorically proved that fans weren't to blame. So I mean, the, there's historical reasons that go back to the potato famine in you know sort of the, the mid 19th century, all the way to Boris Johnson. So I mean, the the question, the, the main question to me is why, if you're a Liverpool fan, wouldn't you boo the national anthem? You know, especially if you're Scouse. And what was I found interesting that. The picture of uh, the the Reesmog kids wearing Liverpool tops, and it, it just struck me a couple of weeks ago. I thought, you know, do they look at the '96 on it and say to the dads, "Well, what does that mean?" You know, and and uh, Liverpool as a city and a club has socialism ingrained on it because of Chankly, you know, the, you know, sort of who talked about the socialism he believed in was working, everyone working for each other, and getting a fair share of the rewards and. Um, and that's the way he saw life. That's the way he saw football, and that that's permeated 
for those of us who grew up with Shankly and, and the post-Shankly Wales, you know, sort of a whole psyche and sense of self. So it, it, it's, it was like a sort of a, a big mix, a sort of stew, scouse, um, <laughs> of, um, uh, of ideas, which all come together with the Boon. And, um, I, 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 you know, sort of the, Mr. Reese Mogg hasn't replied, funnily enough. <laughs> um, you know, it's, but, but it's, I wanted to put a context for people who were, who are, patriotic and Liverpool fans or conservatives and Liverpool fans I wanted to give them a sense of why we boo and why we will continue to boo and the reaction from from Scousers has been very very positive yeah. from other people across the country less positive who um you know who can't understand it um but you know, I mean, again, you go back to um, Alf Garnett in the sixties. You know, Traitorious Scouse gits. Well, yeah, frankly, we are. What's what's also instructive, I think, is whatever about Liverpool, but the response as well. In that, this idea that seems to spread, and I notice a lot from Chelsea fans actually, and City as well. Did he actually just, you know, any sort of disrespect to the national anthem, as if it's a, as if a song which has a questionable verse in itself, and we go into the you know, the history, of symbolism, and all that, but it is somehow sacrosanct, and it's difficult not to link it in some way to the complete normalization of the military at every oh, single yeah. Wembley event. The, the, the fetishization of yeah. you know the armed forces in the American style and the fetishization of the flag increasingly. Yeah. Ab- ab- that's absolutely the flag. And, and it, like, I mean, obviously he hasn't got quite to this stage, but it was difficult not to link some of the backlash to the booing to... It, it sounded very similar to some of the sentiments expressed about Kaepernick taking the knee in, yeah. a, in America. Yeah. Yeah. Give me your explanation, Tony, and the kind of the historical context behind this and the fact that this is nothing new at all. Mm. Were you surprised by the reaction to the booing? And do you think that's kind of indicative of where we are as a country, that people are kind of so upset by this when maybe in previous years it's not caused quite a kind of stir? Yeah, I think it's... Um, I think football's, you know, I'm always saying it's a great weather vane for the political moods of the country. And, you know, you know, you can throw that against Liverpool. I mean, you know, the, the Suarez thing, the way people reacted to that and supported Suarez when he clearly made racist comments and, and actually touched Everest's skin. And yet Liverpool fans checked in their the basic political beliefs and decency at the turnstile and supported them. And that was a, a straw in the wind to this meaner world, you know, it allowed racists to come out the closet, um, you know. Um, and so, so it was that. But I, I think it's it's linked with the whole Brexit thing, this, like, this... Uh, sort of growing, particularly English nationalism and Little England's a mood. And as I say, we, we, you know, no one commented on the booing in 2012 in, against Chelsea. And it's just that we are in, you're right, we're in a different sort of place philosophically in this country where any any show of dissent towards this, like, uh, the, the, this sense of... Uh, Britishness, this this militant sense of Britishness to um, that you know wants to leave the European Community is is pounced upon and and pilloried. Are, are Liverpool the ultimate example, maybe, of a kind of the disconnect between local match attending fans and then also this kind of growing global fan base? And I, I guess the the Reese Mogg children kind of play into that because there's this c- kind of complete separation. And, and it was interesting. I, I went on. Um, 
the Liverpool Reddit page, which is mostly American Liverpool fans. And, mo- and a lot of the reaction was kind of bewilderment. People mm. trying to find out, well, well, why are Liverpool fans doing this? And almost wanting to kind of be a part of it by understanding the reasons. Yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 this goes back, uh, again, a long way. I was on the train coming back from a game probably 10, 12 years ago. And um, a, a, a fellow with his kids recognised me and come over and started talking to me. So, you know, we were just chatting away nicely. And he said to me, you know, you know what, what I dislike about, you know, Liverpool? So I said, mm, what? He said, Liverpool, the place. He said, I hate it. He said, I wish the club was based somewhere else. And I was like, how can you say that to me? How, you know, do you realise how insulting that is? And, but there is, a, there is a proportion of Liverpool fans who feel that way, who kind of would like to take the city and the city's culture out of the club. And if you do that, I mean, to me, it destroys everything football's about. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the things is most most fans, foreign fans, most um, most out of town fans in in the UK and you know sort of and and outside embrace the culture of the club mm. they come and they want to know about it and they mightn't agree you know we, we, you know like the the, the Reese Mogg boys if they did come up we wouldn't expect them to boo the anthem right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> we'd like them to but you know they, they wouldn't be forced you know they, they wouldn't they, you, you don't you don't have to be a socialist to go on the cop we prefer it but you know we, we're not going to force you to do it but we would like you to understand how we feel and why we do it and what we'd like you to do is not to uh, not to demean our culture and our set of beliefs that have been you know sort of that've been wrapped up in the club the club certainly in the 80s um when, when the you know when the seventies and eighties when the the, the the city was under political economic and social pressure, you know in in the worst possible way the club was a flag bearer for mm. for the, the community, and all we want is people to recognise that and recognise that you know that that's important to us and um, you know they can have their own political views they're wrong like but you know what I mean <laughs> they can. I think we're a long way away from this particular debate nationally, but where do you guys kind of stand on the national anthem even being played at, at matches like that? Is it is it necessary? Is it is there room for kind of debate there? <laughs> um, no, I, I, personally, I'd get rid of it. Um, there is even a wider, if you want to really, really go deep, there's a wider argument that uh, national anthems should not be played even inter- at international matches because so many, there's, like, there's actually disconnected between a lot of nations and the area that the, the, the team is supposed to represent. And even if you look at kind of complications of, of cases like Scotland and Wales, uh, given, given the, you know, the, the country is, is Great Britain, or the nation say is Great Britain. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a deeper p- political argument, really. But oh, I, I'd do away with it, to be honest. Abide with me is actually, I suppose, I think FA Cup finally is, I suppose, a bit more... You know, it's, it's football's own tradition. Even if you like the song or not, at least it's kind of football's own tradition rather than kind of the national tradition. Mm. It does feel like football, and definitely as, as has been shown, it feels like society is sort of moving away from it. So I don't think there's any... I, think I would not be against it anyway for getting well, rid of it, well, really. I mean, what we're going to see, you know, we're going to... We're coming up to September, and the whole poppy fascism oh, stuff will start again. You know, and it's um, and you know, I'm I'm not one of these people who say keep politics out of football because football's life, mm-hmm. and you know, life is politics. So, so you can't do that. But the problem is, people want to keep the politics they dislike out of football, yeah, yeah. and so you know what? 
I'm 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 happy to have the national anthem played before matches as long as I can sit down and as long as I can boo it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Miguel, I mean, speaking about politics and football, you also had an article uh, published uh, yesterday um, on the kind of state of English football, really. Um, it's up on the website. It's called The Fight for Football Soul, How Corporate Greed and Political Apathy Poison the English Game. Do you want to kind of maybe give a kind of brief... Well, it's I suppose it's connected to some of what, some of what we've been talking about, particularly in relation to... Um, for, for fans from outside a locality maybe disliking the local culture because it's ultimately about the football no matter what it tries to become no matter what it is football clubs are fundamentally by their very being social institutions that represent the community they're in they're, they're, and, and now, nowadays you know, talking talk to people that work, that work in the police they actually see them as often the sole social institution in some towns the sole social hub the only outlet particularly in kind of League 1 League 2 and even conference level um, and, I, and it actually has aided police even in terms of kind of, you know, um, pursuing issues, all the rest of it. But um, so if, uh, even beyond that, the fundamental issue is how something so, so, so important to communities has been offered absolutely no protection throughout the history of football in this country. Yeah. Uh, and we've got to the point now where... Um, it's become potluck. Well, England essentially operates a completely open system because the fit and proper person has failed and it hasn't hasn't you know been any sort of barrier at all. It means it's potluck who takes over your club, and there are now so many issues, so many different clubs, and some of this is is is, uh, con- is obviously connected to the financial disparity of the game, which is a piece you did in, in May, and kind of suppose maybe is a forerunner to this a little bit. But it's 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 an issue with so many different clubs that it's now a real collective problem in the in the game. But it, but it, that's I don't think that's just even about the uh, maybe the central issue of the piece, which is I suppose the the financial I don't want to say mismanagement, but or I suppose the um, the lack of expression of what a club should be doing inside Mike Ashley or the Glazers are spending money on because it's also about the very use of a club, which brings us to probably the best run club in the country and the most kind of lavishly funded club in the country, which is Manchester City. But this ultimately comes down to the, to the intentions of people who run football clubs, uh, because if they're social institutions that are protected by society, the, the, the intention is basically just to represent the community and play football. Whereas for so many owners, they're an investment vehicle, an opportunity to make money, especially given the kind of the, the the global expansion of the game and how it has really become an economic powerhouse in contrast to the the eighties and nineties, or in the case of Manchester City, where it's its primary operation, according to absolutely any authority in the area, is that it is a, an instrument of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. It's an expression of Abu Dhabi's soft power, and um, you know it, it, it's strange to see City fans who, you know, sort of were probably one of the 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 big greatest examples of, you know, local local supporters who supported you know who, who were tied from the community to the club to um to refuse to to accept this and i, I, I was really interesting earlier this year I went to mansfield and um obviously it, it's a, a place where they've had um economic problems and i was talking to people there and they they've lost in the last 30 years there, uh, 35 years, they lost the pits, the hosiery business, which uh, employed all the women, 
that's moved abroad. Um, Mansfield Bitter, which they were so proud of, uh, the beer moved to, uh, to to Wolverhampton, changed the recipe, and and uh, sort of and uh, barely drinkable, and that that really hurt them. And people said the only thing we've got that we can hold on to is the football club. It's everything else seems to have been taken away by the modern world, but they hold on to the football club, and that's how important football clubs are. And yet the uh, the, the foreign owners who come in, the um, the Mike Ashleys. Don't understand this. And what should have happened is a long time back, they should have, the, the Parliament should have legislated to protect football clubs. Of course, they wouldn't have in the 80s because yeah. uh, the football fans were part of the enemy within. But they should have legislated to protect them. And there should have been something like, um, you know, when they have a list of buildings, yeah, yeah, when you can't materially yeah. change them. Yeah. There should have been that sort of protection um, for football clubs as community assets. Unfortunately, the horse has bolted now. Yeah. And, uh, you, and you, it's too late. expression, because I wanted to ask because we we've headlined it the fight for yeah. English football. Hmm. Is is there a fight? I mean, uh, can, can you do anything? Does to it, kind of does a fight maybe about what next and how fans can respond and whether in I suppose in terms of future ownership purchase maybe maybe some sort of regulation be brought in. But like I mean, t- t- Tony's referring to the eighties. I think that's absolutely fundamental because. Um, one of the key issues in this is that the FA used to have a Rule 34, which did prevent, which I suppose to a degree ensured there was a level of community service as to who got involved in football clubs because of restrictions and kind of dividends could be paid on directors getting paid. Um, <clears throat> and it's not a coincidence that at the height of Thatcherism, just before privatisation really kicked in this country, um, Tottenham Hotspur were the first actually. They wanted to float in the stock market, asked the FA to get around the, how, you know, whether they could set up a limited company to get out of these rules. Um, <clears throat> and the FA just waved them through. And that has basically set the current situation. And, I, and I, again, to come back to what Tony's saying, it, it does feel as if basically the kind of the, the culture, the political culture in this country, which is, which is essentially sure that everything, everything public is, is a, it's a, like, like football clubs, they are open to an absolute free-for-all means mm. this hasn't really gone unchallenged. And I did find that in some of the reaction to the piece and where someone, well, people, people, people have so openly, or certain people, sorry, certain fans have so openly accepted the idea, well, it's a business, isn't it? Mm. When the whole point is, no, they've been, co- they've, they've been allowed to become businesses, but fundamentally they are social institutions and we shouldn't lose sight of that. And football's still the biggest expression of working-class culture in this country. And unfortunately, uh, the people in power have no respect for working-class culture. I suppose the only, not negative reaction to the piece itself, but the only kind of kind of contrasting opinion that keeps coming back are these people who almost seem to kind of accept this Faustian pact English football's got, where it's, it's almost it's people saying, well, maybe the trade-off is worth it because we get to watch the Premier League and it's the best league in the world and we have all these unbelievable players and it's a spectacle. Um, is that is that an argument well, yeah, you kind of I, came I, up I, against? I keep seeing that and it, it does feel like there's an element of kind of like the classic kind of conservative trickle-down economics argument there because there's so much money in the game Obviously, and that's cre- that's helped create this great show. But the problem is the distribution of that money, and ultimately for for individual units within it within the great show, there's no protection for them. So it, it comes back to that phrase of pot look again. If you get if you get a benevolent owner or someone who's willing to put money in, you're do- you're that's fine. Yeah, great. And that means fans will accept a lot, as we've seen in the case with Manchester City. Um, but if you don't, and it's you're really open to it, no matter how much money football football is making. You're in trouble, and that, that that's happened at so many clubs. And and 
worse is worse is looming just over the horizon. There's massive change, and those who are sleepwalking and saying, "Ah, oh, yeah, but we get to watch all the great players," that's, are going to find that there's going to be a fundamental shift in the way the game works, and perhaps it won't be so much fun, and we will uh, we we will lose a lot of clubs in this country. I think. Yeah, well, I, there was a piece I did in in May again, which is the forum of this, which is basically how. So I, I speaking to people who've worked with government on this, and particularly with kind of lower league communities, there are some estimates that up to seventy five percent of League One and League Two clubs could, could go out of business or won't be able to last in their current form in the next five years. Hmm. Because it's not, and it, it comes back to what we're saying as well. Because ultimately, there's so much fascination with the top six. Basically, there's so much concentration of resources in the top six in the Premier League and the Champions League. Um, and that, that doesn't apply to money. It's also the, re- the reason um, so much money flows there because I suppose media interest as well, mm. the change in demographics of support where, you know, I, I think it was, it was put to me several times in relation to that piece, the old kind of lad-dad culture, um, just to use a phrase rather than being sexist about it, but ultimately the kind of generational aspect yeah. of football support in with, with the majority of clubs is completely lost because of the fixation on the biggest clubs. And that's that's feels like it's going to lead to a breaking point. That's the interesting thing, I guess, is that, like like Luke said, sort of throwing it forward, is that some of the world's biggest clubs are owned by their fans, right? So you look at Barcelona Real Madrid, like he's mentioned in Miggs' piece, that Roman Ivanovich tried to buy them, and he was just obviously yeah. was told flat no, because... Um, it was actually, it was not even the no, it was, just, it, was le- it was technically impossible. Precisely, yeah, and you look yeah. at the Bundesliga with the 51% ownership of every, every club in it, it's like, it does show that it's not all about... It's, if you're trying to skew positive, it's almost, it, you'd hope that it's not all over. But obviously, it's a very much an uphill battle from here. It, it does. I mean, Tony alluded to it there, but it does feel as if there's going to be a bit of a, a reckoning for football soon. And that, a lot, a lot of this is kind of, it's a kind of continuing rather unsteadily at the moment. It's quite precarious. There's so there's, there's so there's so many link, traditional links of the game that are at breaking point um, and are being pushed to breaking point by some interests. Uh, that they, things have to realign. Because even look look at most domestic leagues. This is unsustainable. That basically we have a situation where at least three, potentially four, of of Europe's major leagues, where something like seventy five percent of all football resources are are constrained, which is Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and England. Um, obviously, it's it's Germany, Italy, France that have been most critical. But yeah, that that one team always wins the title. I mean. A Super League may not be... The, well, a Super League is very undesirable, but it's the current situation much more desirable. What, what a cheery way to preview the Premier League. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time. Just before we go, um, we're going to ask for your heroes and villains of the week or, or the summer, seeing as, as it's the first one back. So, um, Ben, do you maybe want to volunteer your hero over the past couple of months? Um, I mean, there's lots of candidates, I guess, but if we're going to go over the last, last three, four months, I think it's, it's Megan Rapinoe, right? I mean... The original heroine, I think she showed what how powerful football can still be, and that you can get the president to tweet about you. But um, it she, she was magnificent, and I think put women's football on the map. There's a lot of work to do with that, and it'll be telling in the next few months if they can if the authorities and Sky and BT and us in the media can keep it going. But I think Rapinoe was outstanding. Miguel, do you want to volunteer a villain? Um, maybe the week in this was Ashley. <laughs> I think so. I, 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 not not so much for anything he's doing, but I suppose for what he represents, and that it's uh, a personification of this entire problem. Yeah, uh, brilliant. Well, that's all we've got time for uh, this week. Be sure to follow Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything going on, and make sure you read Tony Miguel's pieces as well. 
If you're a new listener, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye.